0: We've been in our learning mode um, in terms of learning from the life of David, his calling, and what it means to each of us um, since 4th uh, of July weekend. We began this uh, series of sermons, and we started in First Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter like 16, uh, and in that chapter, um, God has decided that um, Saul no longer should be king of Israel, and he's going to anoint a new king. And uh, God sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house to choose one of his sons to anoint him as a future king. And uh, that all happened uh, back on uh, 4th of July weekend. And and poof, six weeks later, David's king. Who knew it was that quick, right? Um, Today we are going to kind of fast forward to David's life. We've been through a lot of things that have happened to 2 Samuel, chapter 5. I'm going to read from there you're also going to join me in reading this passage i'm going to ask you to read the yellow part is when the people of israel actually go and beg for this uh, king to be changed and go to david and find him and say let's make this transition so i'll read the white part if you'll read the yellow part let's read the word of god together all the tribes of israel came to david at hebron and said had come to King David at Hebron the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years in Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months and in Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years promise promise and fulfillment promise and fulfillment is a major uh, what we call theological motif throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation promise and fulfillment God makes promises to his people and God always fulfills the promises he makes God is faithful in fulfilling his promises and our faith is based on that foundation of God's faithfulness and so this morning I want to just mentioned three things about God's promise and fulfillment motif. One is um, to think about the expectations that we have for God's faithfulness. Secondly, to think about the timing of God keeping his promises. And then thirdly, to talk a little bit about the means. I mean, we're familiar with the promises that God makes. They're all the way through Scripture. Um, I went through and chose some just to share with you this morning to get this idea. The greedy stir up conflict, but... Those who trust in the Lord will prosper. There's a promise. If you trust in the Lord, you're going to prosper. Another one from uh, Luke. Give and it will be given to you. If you are a giver, it's going to be given back to you in some way, shape, or form. I will give you eternal life and you shall never perish. There's a promise. You will never perish. Your grief will be turned to joy, not might be, not possibly could be, not somehow. Your grief will be turned to joy, God promises. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing, God's promise. nothing will be impossible for you. Now those are just a sampling of God's promises. You probably know a lot of others we could spend all morning long going and selecting them out of scripture and reading them. But if we're honest with ourselves and with others, we are oftentimes disappointed because we feel that God has let us down. He hasn't really kept the promises that he's made for us. We're looking for prosperity, but it hasn't really arrived yet. We can't overcome minor obstacles, let alone move mountains out of the way. God is a frequent companion, and grief is there with us, but joy is very elusive. I mean, I know lots of promises that God has made, but how does this fulfillment thing work? How does we get the fulfilled promises of God? Now, the Bible isn't the only place that promises are made. We have promises made to us um, all the time, right? Uh, we promised we'd have a worship service this morning. Boom, here we are, fulfilled. It's not that complicated. It's very simple. When I was 16 years old, my dad came to me, and he promised me that I would have a car. Um, and I needed a car because um, I wanted one. I mean, I know I needed a car uh, because we lived about six or eight miles from school. I was involved with all sorts of stuff, and getting home from practices and all sorts of things as well was very difficult for me. My parents were divorced. My mom was a single mom. She was working full-time, so I needed transportation. So I thought, oh, my dad promised me a car. This is going to be great. I can't wait to get the car. And so I started to build my expectations. And this is what the car I wanted looked like. This is what I thought. When my dad said I was going to have a car, and this is a 57 Chevy, which means that it was only about that many years old. Um, not that old when I was promised a car when I was 16. It wasn't that long ago. But this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to get a car, right? My buddies aren't going to be allowed in this car because it has, you know, white leather inside. Um, but girls can get in. Um this is what I imagined. This is what my expectation was. My dad made a promise, and then my dad brought my car over, and it kind of looked like this. <laughs> this is literally the car, my first car I ever had. It's not the picture of the car, but I had a 1960 Chevrolet Impala that was uh, like I don't want to say it was faded blue, but the, bon- the you know the sun had baked all the blue out of the car. Um, <laughs> And it was more, I would take my car to the gas station. This was the olden days where guys would come out and put gas into your car. And um, I would say, could you fill the oil and check my gas? Because it just, you know, that's the way that whole engine kind of worked. It was a very different, in fact, one day, I had some of my football playing buddies in the back seat of the car and we're cruising around. Um, I really would, shouldn't say we were trying to pick up chicks in that car because that would be a mistake. But we were just cruising. We were going through McDonald's. I went over the speed bump and the back seat literally fell through the floorboard. <laughs> But I built up expectations, and my, guy, my dad disappointed me with reality, and, and it's not the only place that it happens, you know. Let's say you're, you're, you're interviewing for a new job, and the hiring agent at this new place promises that you're going to have excellent working conditions and reasonable hours, and there's going to be lots of teamwork and collaboration, and you're going to have a lot of personal fulfillment by working at this company. And you can't wait. This sounds great, right? I'm going to go. This is going to be wonderful. And then you get there and reality sets in. The computer that you're asked to use at your new uh, employment center is at least eight years old. Which is like ancient for computers. And it kind of grinds along very slowly and everything it does. Because the internet connection isn't that great in this business either. The programs that you're asked to use are probably ten years old, so they also don't move very quickly and don't really accomplish everything that you need to have uh, accomplished. And you're expected, you find out, after a week or so, to come early and to leave late with no extra pay. And the collaboration thing is an aspirational goal. Just, it doesn't happen. Um, I'm describing what happened when I came to work here. So, um, <laughs> you were promised something. And you built your expectations, but reality was very different. And that's exactly what we do with the promises that God makes as well. We read them, we embrace them, we build up expectations, and then we're disappointed when our expectations aren't met. When God promises abundance or prosperity, we imagine that we're going to have more than enough money for everything that we ever need in life, all sorts of material possessions, everything that we really want, and we're going to be able to take exotic vacation because God promised us prosperity and abundance, and that's our expectation. When God promises peace that passes understanding, we expect stress free lives, no worry, no anxiety, no conflict, no uh, turmoil, because God promised us peace. David was promised that he would be king. And then David returned to his job as shepherd. And David, because he's a human being, is building up expectations in his mind about what it will look like to be king. I mean, you know, he knows what the palace looks like. He knows what a king's life looks like. You have everything at your fingertips. This is going to be wonderful. You've got servants. You've got everything you ever needed. I mean, it's going to be so much different. You've got people around you all the time. You know, he was also a musician. He was going to have the best instruments that money could buy because, I mean, after all, he was going to be king. And this is the expectation that he built in his mind. He didn't expect the challenges or the conflicts or the difficulties that he experienced that wasn't a part of his imagination at all God always fulfills his promises but the fulfillment is always related to his vision of the kingdom and not our vision of the kingdom he promised the nation of Israel that they would have a Messiah and their expectation was that this Messiah would be In in not only the line of David, but exactly like David, he would be a military leader who would conquer everyone, just like David did. He he would make Israel prosperous once again. They would be an international power. All the other nations would bow at their feet. That was their expectation, because there was a promised Messiah. Part of the reason that Jesus ran into the trouble that he ran into as the Messiah was because he couldn't meet their expectations. And quite honestly, Jesus left many people disappointed. God's promises need to be embraced within the context of God's definitions and God's terms. When Jesus instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry, you know, there's a whole section, you know, don't worry about what you will wear or what you will eat or where you will live. Well then what will I worry about if I don't worry about that? That you know, that's the question, right? I mean, Jesus said, don't worry about that stuff. But seek first the king his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be gathered under you as well. And so all these things will be gathered under you. Well, doesn't that mean that all these things will be gathered then? I'm not going to have, I'm going to have all the clothing I need, I'm going to have all the money I need, I'm going to have the great house I need, I'll, I don't have to worry about anything, so I'm going I'm to have all this stuff, because I sought first the kingdom, I worship God, I, I honor Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and all these things are going to be given to me. But when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, more often than not, what we really get is his perspective. And we find out that all the stuff that we want or think we need really isn't necessary. And all the things that we worry about and are concerned about, the clothing, the food, the shelter, God takes care of them in his way and not our way. And what happens when we seek first the kingdom of God is what we really get is his perspective on life and not ours. And his expectation and not our expectation. When Jesus promises a peace that passes understanding, he isn't promising a life without difficulty or worry or problems. He's simply promising that his presence will be with us in all the turmoil, in all the difficulty, and that he will give us a peace that none of us could ever imagine. Human beings can't give it. God's promises are always fulfilled within the context of God's expectations. Secondly, there's this issue of timing. God fulfills all the promises that he makes, but his sense of timing is a little different than ours. Theologians estimate that that David was about 17 years old when he was promised that he would be king. And he did become king, not in six weeks like he did here at Elmhurst, but it was like about 13 years before he eventually became king. And then, if you read carefully the scripture passage, He didn't become king of Israel. He first became king of Judah after 13 years. A small fiefdom that was part of Israel, but wasn't all of Israel. And he was king in Judah at Hebron for seven years and six months. (laughs) So now we have, let me see, 13 plus seven, six months, about 20 and a half years. Before our scripture passage fulfilled the promise that Samuel had given, when Samuel came to David and said, you're going to be king of Israel, he might have thought, great, a couple years, five years, but 20 some years? promised the people of Israel that they would have their own nation, a promised land and Moses led them out of Egypt to take them to that promised land and 40 years later they were there I mean patience is not our strong suit we live in a microwave society I mean I, I really do find this phenomenal, if you, anybody ever ordered anything from Amazon Amazon.com, it's okay to remember, we're not advertising, although we thought about it, it'd be kind of cool. If you, These days, if you order, order something from Amazon, first of all, it's a Dutchman's dream, right? If you're a primetime member, it's free shipping. <laughs> we love free. But sometimes you can, if you order the right stuff, it'll be delivered to wherever you are the same day. Where do they keep all this stuff? Well, if you drive up the Tri-State, you can see one of the places they keep a is this gigantic Amazon warehouse right along the Tri-State up north toward Cheeseland. I mean, Wisconsin. Um, but it's amazing to me. I mean, within 24 hours, 48 hours, if you got to wait 48 hours for an Amazon delivery, you're a little nervous right now, right? You're kind of mad. Well, what, What's it taking so long? If you want to communicate with someone, all you need to do is to write an email or a text message. And within seconds, you can get something back. Just like that. And when we don't get something back within seconds, how do we respond? Parents, let's hear how you respond to your children when they don't respond to your text Right away! Or your friends, whatever the case might be. It's instantaneous. We expect instantaneous. That's the way communication works, right? Waiting is not a great human virtue. And it's not just a contemporary issue. We read about it in the Bible as well. God promised Jacob that he would receive the inheritance from his father that was really rightly his older brother's. God made that promise, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. So what does Jacob do? He kind of cooks up a little scheme with his mom, and they make sure that he gets it early. They they buffalo his dad into, into giving the inheritance to Jacob long before it's ever supposed to happen. Because Jacob just God promised Abraham and Sarah at a very old age that they were going to have a child. And they had waited a long time. They'd been very patient. They just had kind of given up on the whole thing. Oh, no, you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. And they still couldn't wait. So they forced God's hand. And they took one of the servants and had a baby with his servant, Hagar. this is how Ishmael was born. And it led to what? All sorts of eternal Because they just couldn't wait for God to fulfill his promise. Waiting is not our strong suit in life. God always fulfills his promises. But he always fulfills them in the time frame. That his is and not our own. And David must have somehow learned this lesson. Because in Psalm 130 he writes. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word. God will fulfill his promises in his own time frame. And then the last thing I want to mention is this whole idea of means. God promised David that he would be king, but he didn't explain exactly to him what he would have to go through before he'd realize what it meant to be king. And it certainly wasn't the pathway that that David would have designed for himself or had any imagination when he was setting up his own expectations about how he would become king and what it would look like. He didn't count on year after year after year of being a fugitive because Saul was trying to kill him and garnered all sorts of resources against him. He wasn't counting on that. That wasn't the means by which he was going to become king, at least in his own mind. He went back to being a shepherd. When Samuel first anointed him and said, You're going to be king of Israel, David's first step was back to being a shepherd. The second step was unexpectedly called to be a court musician for King Saul. And then he was named a special assistant. And then he got frustrated with the way the people of Israel were reacting to Goliath, and so he took him on himself and killed him. And then he was cheered as a hero, and he couldn't even imagine that happening. Unbelievable. This is great. I'm going to be king. And then everything got kind of ugly, right? Because of Saul's jealousy. He didn't imagine living life as a fugitive. Hiding out day after day. Always looking over his shoulder. Wondering if he was going to live or die. And even if he, when he became king, it wasn't really the king of Israel. It was this king of the small little fiefdom called Judah. Is this what it means to be king? Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. We celebrate at Christmas the great patentry of the birth of Jesus Christ. Born in Bethlehem, honored by only a few people as the, the, the Messiah who came. And then he and his mom and dad, a little circuitous route, but eventually they end up back in their hometown of Nazareth. And there Jesus sits for 30 years. The Messiah sits as an unknown carpenter for 30 years until he begins his public ministry. And then when he begins his public ministry, it would be a mistake to believe that everybody gave him a standing ovation. He was constantly harassed, constantly in arguments. His wife was constantly threatened until eventually he ends up on a cross. This is the means, this is the means by which you become Messiah, this is the means? The means that God uses to fulfill His promises are not very common or expected. It's not the way that we might choose, but God's promises are always fulfilled. Now, I felt obligated um, today in my message to use an Olympic illustration to honor um, the, the Olympics. It's been great. So, uh, have you heard of Katie Ledecky? Anybody heard of Katie Ledecky? I mean, she is a phenomenal former Her teammates, they'll you know, look at Katie Ledecky and they go, I mean, they can't imagine. And that's the guys. I mean, how did she do this? It's amazing. It's phenomenal what she does. And, and she's an Olympian. She's won a ton of medals already. But, you know, when she was nine years old, this dream of being the Olympics was promised in her heart. It was born there. When she was nine years old, she was on a swim club, and they swam in a bunch of different meets all over uh, the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, and they were at one big meet, and the organizers of this uh, meet had arranged for Michael Phelps, who's also from the Baltimore area, to come and sign autographs for all these little swimmers nine years old. He was already Olympic champion. Can you imagine? So there's Katie Ledecky. You probably recognize her. You do recognize Michael Phelps, right, the goofy-looking guy with a hat? He hasn't changed much. Um, But... There's Katie Ledecky, nine years old, getting Michael Phelps' autograph. And here, in her mind and heart, a dream is planted. Maybe someday I could be an Olympian. Ten years later, Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps, are teammates, both gold medal winners in the Olympics. Phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. Promise and fulfillment hold it. No, God didn't send her that promise. I'm going, oh, just stop a second. Pump the brakes. How does God plant dreams and hopes and promises in our hearts and minds? Through everyday ordinary experiences. I mean, Samuel doesn't come to everybody and say, someday you're going to do this or someday you're going to do that. When I was a high school student, uh, my parents were divorced. My father didn't live with us. I didn't have um, uh, a father figure in the home. But God blessed me, now that I look back, with a lot of great male role models who were teachers and coaches in my high school. I mean, I idolized these guys. And most of my social studies teachers were also coaches. And as I sat in their classroom, I said, you know, someday I'd like to be like them. I'd like to be a teacher and a coach. I'd like to do that. Is that not God planting something in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? God planted this dream. It was a promise that I had that eventually God fulfilled. Promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment. God is a God of promise and fulfillment. He never makes a promise that he doesn't fulfill. It might not be exactly the way we expect it to be fulfilled. It probably won't be in our time frame. You can count on ups and downs along the way, but God promises that he will always fulfill his promises. When reflecting on the promises that God makes, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. No matter how many promises God has made, and there are thousands of them that Paul was thinking of. They are all yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Of God. So there was a, a couple that we met um, along our journey of ministry, um, and, and you know, they're, they're kind of your, your it's kind of like you know, the classic American story, right? They, they, they met in college when they graduated from college, they got married. Uh, after they got married, they both had jobs, they pursued careers, they saved money, they bought a house. You know, they lived together for a few. I mean, they were living out this you know kind of plan that a lot of people have, uh, and then they were going to start a family. So, um, you know, they, they got pregnant. They were going to have this baby. They carried the baby full term. It was nine months, um, and then shockingly and tragically, um, their baby was stillborn. Horrible tragedy for a young couple. Your expectations are all built. The nursery is all there. Everything's all bought. All you can imagine is a little baby at your house, but their baby was still born. It was a horrible shock, tragedy. They were going through the grieving process. They had a funeral for the baby. And as um, a couple that were committed to Christ, they asked all sorts of questions about God's promises. And they kind of focused on this one, Romans 8, 28. We like to haul this out all the time, except when we're in their situation. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purposes. Doesn't that sound great? That's a great promise. Except it's a pretty dark promise when you got a stillborn baby. How's God ever going to fulfill this promise? How can anything good ever come out of that? Their life progressed. Um, they were able to have children without any sorts of complications. They lived their life. And in the spirit of what um, Dutch priest and theologian, writer and pastor Henry Nouwen says, they became wounded healers. They had suffered the wound of having a stillborn child. And they grieved the loss of that child. There isn't a day that that goes by in their life where they don't grieve the loss of that. But at the same time, over the course of the last 27 years, they've sat with probably hundreds of other parents who've lost children, and listened to their story, and shared their story. And they would say, this is God fulfilling His promise, that God works together in the lives of His people. In every situation, He can make something. Does that mean they celebrate? Does that mean they don't think? Does that mean they don't agree? on no, no. them? But God uses their situation, their horrible, tragic, difficult, painful situation to touch the lives of others. And Becky just ran into her the other day and she just shared, I just met with another woman, she said, a couple weeks ago. 27 years, she's been a wounded healer for other people. God makes promises to us other people And God always fulfills every promise he makes, in his own way, in his own time, and through all the means. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we are grateful that you are a God who fulfills promises. And before any of us in this room ever knew what was happening, one of your promises was that that we are yours. You knew us before the foundation of the world. And you promised to make us your children. And so thank you for chasing us down, for embracing us, for loving us, for giving us the gift of salvation, and for giving us a community of people with whom we can share life. Thank you, O Lord, for being a God that we can count on, Fulfill the promises that you make, and help us to live as people who live with your promises at the forefront of our hearts and minds. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.